this is the book right here, Liberalism, Ancient and Modern. Um, and I wanted to discuss early the preface and the first chapter, maybe the second chapter, even that is enough to take us um, into a long discussion. And a bit of background, the reason that I wanted to talk about this book um, in particular is that I've recently been having conversations with some people about how Leo Strauss fits into this general category of right-wing anti-liberalism. If you follow any of my um, work, you know that I have said that usually in universities we get uh, liberal political theory or political theory to the left of liberalism, uh, left-wing anti-liberalism, but we don't learn much about the right-wing anti-liberal alternatives. Um, one of the foremost figures, as you probably know, of right-wing anti-liberalism is Schmidt, Carl Schmidt. Strauss wrote a response to Carl Schmidt's book, The Concept of the Political, that Schmidt himself esteemed highly. I think he said something like, Strauss has seen through me like an x-ray, he's seen my meaning and my intention more than uh, any other reader has done. In his response to Schmidt's book, Strauss argues that Schmidt is still too liberal. So that's, I think that should be surprising for people because you have a foremost right-wing anti-liberal examined as being still too much ensnared in the presuppositions of liberalism. Strauss says that an adequate criticism of liberalism, such as Schmidt uh, sought to offer, would have to pass beyond the horizons of liberalism, specifically through a study of the modern break with classical political philosophy that was affected by Hobbes and also, um, as Strauss's research later showed, by Machiavelli. So, Strauss says, to, get, to have a genuine criticism of liberalism, you have to go to the moment of liberalism's constitution, see what it was opposed to, and reopen that quarrel between the ancients and the moderns, something that um, Schmidt failed to do. So Strauss himself sought to reopen the quarrel between the ancients and the moderns, between classical and modern political philosophy. Um, in this book, Liberalism, Ancient and Modern, it examines how what it means to be liberal differs in the ancient and modern understanding. It examines the classical notion of the virtue of liberality and of liberal education as a corrective to the modern crisis of liberal democracy. So it's in that context that, um, that I'm reading it and that I wanted to share a reading of it um, with you. So my plan is to go over the preface in at least the first chapter. I, as I say, depending on time, we can go over the second chapter. It's, uh, it's rich. There are a lot of distinctions there, but the two um, chapters work together. The second one is written um, in response to a request for elaboration on something he said in the first one. And along the way, I'll have some additional remarks to add. Um, basically, the plan is to pull out, like to actually read from the text, to pull out key concepts and distinctions so that you can hear the argument as he develops it. I'll also comment from time to time, and then hopefully there are some questions um, and comments that we can discuss as they come up. So now to the preface. Um, liberalism, so let me just give you, this is late, I think this was 1959, this, uh, this essay. So liberalism is understood here and now in contradistinction to conservatism. That's the beginning, opening line. Uh, everyone might be liberal in some respects and conservative in others, 
But as ideal types, liberals and conservatives have a practical significance. Here's Strauss' example. Strauss's example. A liberal supports the war on poverty and opposes the war in Vietnam. And a conservative opposes the war on poverty and supports the war in Vietnam. And you can substitute contemporary examples to see uh, whether and to what extent that ideal type, liberals and conservatives, or let's say uh, left liberals and right liberals, or something like that, um, is still accurate. But I think in general, you'll find that they do describe two meaningful political ideal types. A more serious difficulty, though, that Strauss notes right off the bat, is that liberalism and conservatism have a common basis. Both are based on liberal democracy. And therefore, in the context of the Cold War at least, are antagonistic to communism. So the opposition doesn't seem fundamental. You begin with what seems like a fundamental distinction, notice that they have a common root in liberal democracy, and that therefore the opposition seems um, superficial. Yet, they differ, liberalism and conservatism, um, in their attitude towards communism. So Strauss says liberals share the same goal as communists, the universal and classless society, the homogenous state in which, as he puts it, title to full membership is supplied by one's being an adult, non-moronic human being for all those times when he is not locked up in an insane asylum or prison. At least liberals aim at the greatest approximation to the universal homogenous state. In other words, they want egalitarian globalism. They don't want national boundaries. Um, they don't want there to be deep class distinctions. They want it to be um, universal egalitarian globalism. And they share that goal, according to Strauss, with uh, the communists. Some of them say it is that some of them say that this globalism is the necessary outcome of economic and technological progress which forces advanced countries to develop underdeveloped countries um, in their own self-interest. So you need to expand um, your markets. And ultimately, this logic, economic and technological logic, leads um, inherently to a universal state, universal classless society or universal homogenous state. Um, by contrast, conservatives do not share the same goal as liberals and communists. Conservatives think that the universal homogenous state is undesirable, if so it can be undesirable but possible, or undesirable and impossible. Um, he writes that they're not imperialists, but they do not impose, um, sorry, they do not oppose regional associations larger than the nation state. So conservatives can support uh, supranational regional integration. Unlike liberals, Conservatives defend the particular and the heterogeneous. At least, he writes, they're more willing than liberals are to respect and perpetuate a more fundamental diversity than the one that's ordinarily respected or taken for granted by liberals and uh, communists. That is the diversity regarding language, folk songs, pottery, and the like. So left liberals um, and left anti-liberals, they acknowledge a diversity of pottery and foods foods and so on. But conservatives are willing to say that the diversity um, is even more fundamental than that. It concerns even more fundamental matters than um, how you dress and what you eat. Conservatives, Strauss says, distrustful of reason. 
trusting instead in tradition, which is necessarily this or that tradition, and hence particular. Liberal universalism, on the other hand, is founded on the universalism proceeding from reason. Uh, let me just stop here and mention that Yoram Hazoni, their National Conservatism Conference is going on now in Washington. And in his book, The Virtue of Nationalism, he operates more or less with the distinction, like the one Strauss mentioned here um, 60 years earlier, that on one hand, you have liberal universalism based on rationalism, and on the other, conservative particularism based on distrust of rationalism. However, Strauss adds here that conservative distrust of reason leaves it open to the criticism that it is unconcerned with the unity of truth. So we can't leave it just at a suspicion or distrust of reason. Um, liberals, for their part, can be criticized for being insufficiently concerned with the fact that the Western tradition is being eroded by changes toward global government, which they demand and applaud. And he adds that their own aspirations are rooted in the Western tradition, that they themselves are eroding, and ultimately that they um, misunderstand. So having mentioned this distinction about how they treat reason, whether with suspicion or whether with uh, hope, Strauss takes a step back to characterize the difference between liberals and conservatives um, with respect to their attitude toward change. Conservatives, he writes, uh, conservatives oppose change and liberals on the whole think that change is change for the better. That fact means that we should rather call them progressives than liberals. They're not so much defenders of the substantial, substantive concept of liberty as they are representatives of a positive attitude toward change as such. Basically, suspicion toward change and a positive attitude toward change. Conservative opposition to change used to mean support of throne and altar, but no longer means that in the Cold War American context. The conservatism of our age, he says, is identical with what originally was liberalism, more or less modified by changes in the direction of present-day liberalism, by which he means that conservatism is basically like classical liberalism or liberal conservatism that defends freedom from government interference, uh, the sanctity of private property, free markets, equality of opportunity, and other classical liberal ideas. But Strauss argues, so again, he's some, made, drawn some distinctions, made some comparisons, shown some similarities and some uh, differences. But Strauss argues that conservatism and liberalism, like communism, and here he doesn't mention fascism, but we can add it to the picture, all share a common root. They are all modern in the specific sense that they share the presuppositions that characterized the radical break with ancient political philosophy in the 17th century. Liberalism, communism, and we can add fascism, are all modern. They share that. And to understand the alternatives to them, we must reopen um, the debate between the modern political philosophers who broke with the classics and the classics themselves. So the conflict between ancient political philosophy and the radical break with it made by modern political philosophy Strauss calls the quarrel between the ancients and the moderns, and that's a crucial theme for him. Much of his writings are dedicated to reawakening our sense of the quarrel or conflict between ancient political philosophy and modern political philosophy. 
And the issue is that if we see modern political philosophy as better than ancient political philosophy, simply by virtue of the fact that it's modern, we're presupposing the progressive view that something is better which comes later in time. Um, whereas that view that something is better because it comes later in time, the progressive view is one of the things that is in dispute between ancients and moderns. So we can't decide the conflict between them by invoking basic progressivist dogmas. Strauss says that we're reminded of the quarrel between the ancients and the moderns by the fact that the term liberal is still used in its pre-modern sense, especially in the expression liberal education. Liberal education is not the opposite of conservative education, but the opposite of illiberal education. To be liberal in the original sense meant to practice the virtue of liberality. We'll, he'll say more about that later and its significance for the ancient alternative. If it's true that some, like some old thinkers argued, that all of the virtues or excellences imply the others, that you can't have one without having them all, then to be, to be liberal means to be genuinely virtuous or genuinely excellent. So today, to be liberal means just not to be conservative, according to Strauss. And it's no longer assumed that being liberal is the same as being virtuous or excellent, or even that being liberal has anything at all to do with being virtuous or excellent. So here I want to make a following quick comment that virtuous in the sense in which Strauss is using it here means pertaining to human excellence. Classically, the human excellences or virtues were things like courage, temperance, justice, wisdom. Um, here, those of you who joined, I'm just going, hi, nice to see you. I'm not going to name names. But, uh, you, I'm just going to mute your microphone so that uh, the background noise doesn't get recorded. And when, you, if, and when you'd like to speak, just un unmute it. Or as I said earlier, you can uh, comment in the chat if you have questions or comments. So when Strauss says that classically, um, to be liberal meant to have the virtue of liberality, which is concerned with the proper use of property, as we'll see. And the virtues were human excellences. Aristotle examined liberality in his study of the virtues. There's also a Christian sense of virtue, but the main point is that um, the main point is that liberal had this different sense of human excellence before. A person is liberal with his resources, who is neither um, overly stingy or a um, careless spender. So here's what Aristotle says about that. The liberal person will give the right amounts of money to the right people at the right times and will take pleasure in giving. Giving money only grudgingly is a sign of illiberality. Feeling no strong attachment to money, the liberal person manages resources well and does not squander money as the prodigal person would. So the liberal person has resources and in that sense is free, as we'll see in greater detail in chapter two. He's not attached, however, to his wealth. He uses his resources well in the best case as a basis for nobler engagements like politics and philosophy. The person who has the virtue of liberality isn't an entrepreneurial busybody. He's not attached to his wealth or to the seeking of wealth. So if not contemporary liberals, at least the term liberal reminds us of an ancient understanding of man and politics. 
And Strauss says that in this ancient uh, or classical understanding, in its original sense, being liberal is so incompatible, so, sorry, so little incompatible with being conservative that generally speaking, it goes together with a conservative posture. So we began with liberal and conservative as ideal types that describe two different political outlooks, showed that they have a commonality, a shared commonality in liberal democracy as opposed to communism. However, distinguished their attitude towards communism, he says liberal, um, liberals share the goal of a universal homogenous state and conservatives do not, brought them together again as sharing this fundamental modern presupposition and now has made his initial distinction with the classical notion of a liberal or the classical virtue of liberality and connected it with the conservative posture or conservative disposition. Classical liberalism as going together with a conservative posture. Well, what is that conservative posture? He says a bit about it in the preface. It is not a strict traditionalism because ancient liberalism said that all men seek by nature not the ancestral, but the good. However, the ancient liberal, um, so in that sense, he says it's distinct from what we may regard as a conservative, not the ancestral or the traditional as such, but the good. Yet, the ancient liberal was a, was a supporter not of open society, but of closed society. Maybe we can say he was an enemy of open society. Was a supporter of closed, particularistic society that rests on a fundamental, partial opinion about the good. An opinion that cannot be undermined without undoing the social fabric. For the classical liberal, there is no simply rational society that is not based on partial opinions, but on universal truths. And Strauss and his students analyzed how modern political philosophies, modern political philosophers disagreeing with that classical view, sought to undermine partial opinions about the good, calling them prejudices, taking aim at them with the hope of replacing them by a rational society. And yet, if it's true that a simply rational society is not possible, in removing the prejudices, they removed the foundation of the social order and offered nothing with which to replace it that could actually do so. That was the preface. Strauss's first essay in this book, What is Liberal Education, is an attempt to restore some sense of the classical understanding of human excellence in the context of modern liberal democracy, which is characterized by vulgar mass culture on one hand and a technical culture of soulless specialists on the other. It's an attempt to remind us of nobility, beauty, and genuine hierarchy not the false corrupt hierarchy of powers, but the true configuration of things that are in themselves high or low, noble or base. So those are the preparatory um, remarks from the preface, establishing this, why we are now looking at liberal education. And, and what I'm going to do as we turn to chapter one, for the most part, is just read the relevant passages. I just read through and stop um, and comment when need be. And I have to say, it crossed my mind last night that just reading is, on one hand, maybe where's the value added, so to speak, if all I'm doing is reading. Though, as I say, I will comment and draw connections. Um, but I thought it's like an orchestra saying about a piece of music that 
we didn't write this music. We're just um, performing it. But it's the performance of the music that moves people. And in my view, Strauss's essays are in a way like sheet music. Uh, it helps to hear them performed or read. And it takes some musical skill, so to speak, to be able to read them and let them resound. Strauss, even though he's writing in, in English, uh, and in principle, you can just look at it and read it, um, it does, it is its own type of language in a way. You do need to uh, have a special skill, I think, to be able to hear it the way it was meant to be heard. So that's my little apology for um, just reading large excerpts, which I'm going to do at times. So if you have the book, you can uh, follow along. If you don't have it, then just listen. As I say, if you have any questions along the way, you can um, raise them in the microphone or by chat, and uh, feel free to stop me at any time. The opening line of this What is Liberal Education, it's crucial right from the very beginning. Liberal education is education in culture or toward culture. The finished product of a liberal education is a cultured human being. Culture, cultura, means primarily agriculture, the cultivation of the soil and its products, taking care of the soil, improving the soil in accordance with its nature. Culture means derivatively, and today chiefly, the cultivation of the mind, the taking care and improving of the native faculties of the mind in accordance with the nature of the mind. Just as the soil needs cultivators of the soil, the mind needs teachers, cultivators of the mind. But teachers are not as easy to come by as farmers. The teachers themselves are pupils and must be pupils. They learn from somebody. But there cannot be an infinite regress. Ultimately, there must be teachers who are not in turn pupils. Those teachers who are not in turn pupils are the great minds. Or, in order to avoid any ambiguity in a matter of such importance, the greatest minds. Such men are extremely rare. We are not likely to meet any of them in any classroom. We are not likely to meet any of them anywhere. It is a piece of good luck if there is a single one alive in one's time. For all practical purposes, pupils of whatever degree of proficiency have access to the teachers who are not in turn pupils to the greatest minds only through the great books. Liberal education will then consist in studying with the proper care the great books which the greatest minds have left behind, a study in which the more experienced pupils assist the less experienced pupils, including the beginners. That's the first paragraph. He's going to elaborate in ways that are crucial about some of the key points here. What does it mean to read with the proper care? What do we mean when we speak of a single culture of the mind? But you see, liberal democracy comes to light in this first paragraph as the study of the great books, not of some contemporary school of thought that might be uh, all the rage, but of the tried, tested, and true. However, he immediately uh, begins with the following qualifications. This is not an easy task, as would appear if we were to consider the formula which I have just mentioned. That formula requires a long commentary. Many lives have been spent and may still be spent in writing such commentaries. For instance, what is meant by the remark that the great books should be studied, quote unquote, with the proper care? At present, I mention only one difficulty, 
which is obvious to everyone among you, the greatest minds do not all tell us the same things regarding the most important themes. The community of the greatest minds is rent by discord and even by various kinds of discord. Whatever further consequences this may entail, it certainly entails the consequence that liberal education cannot be simply indoctrination. A study of the great books, a study of the great minds, cannot be indoctrination because there's not a single doctrine upon which the great minds agree. I mentioned yet another difficulty, he writes. Liberal education is education in culture. That's what he had said. In what culture? Our answer is culture in the sense of the Western tradition. Yet, an objection that you probably can't have foreseen or can imagine people making if you haven't already heard it uh, ad nauseum, Western culture is only one among many cultures. By limiting ourselves to Western culture, do we not condemn liberal education to a kind of parochialism? And is not parochialism, this narrow-minded um, appeal to Western culture only, is not parochialism incompatible with the liberalism, the generosity, and the open-mindedness of liberal education. Our notion, the notion he just mentioned of liberal education as cultivation of the mind, does not seem to fit an age which is aware of the fact that there is not the culture of the human mind, but rather a variety of cultures. Obviously, culture... Okay, so that's the objection. How can you talk about the cultivation of the mind? Are there not many cultures. And we can extend that. When you talk about the great books and you want to assign to your students or you want to read with your colleagues Plato and Aristotle, aren't you over-privileging um, dead white men from the Western uh, tradition? Are you not therefore being um, overly parochial? Well, he has a response here to the idea of culture being taken in the plural, which he develops to a reduction to absurdity. So let's see how he does that and um, see whether we can feel the power of this um, reduction to absurdity. Culture is now no longer, as people say, an absolute, but has become relative. It is not easy to say what culture, susceptible of being used in the plural, means. As a consequence of this obscurity, people have suggested, explicitly or implicitly, that culture is any pattern of conduct common to any human group. You know, you can hear that even in the term rape culture. Rape culture means there is a pattern of behavior that characterizes a certain group. That's the sense in which culture is used there. Not as cultivation of the mind, but as a pattern of conduct common to a human group. Hence, we do not hesitate to speak of the culture of suburbia or of the cultures of ju juvenile gangs, both delinquent and non-delinquent. In other words, every human being outside of lunatic asylums is a cultured human being, for he participates in a culture. At the frontiers of research, there arises the question as to whether there are not cultures also of inmates of lunatic asylums. If we contrast the present-day usage of culture with the original meaning, it is as if someone would say that the cultivation of a garden may consist of the gardens being littered with empty tin cans and whiskey bottles and used papers of various descriptions thrown around the garden at random. Okay, that's the reduction to absurdity there. Having arrived at this point, we realize that we have lost our way somehow. Let us then make a fresh start by raising the question, what can liberal education mean here and now? And here I'd like to stop to make um, a few comments. First of all, this image that to speak of, to relate the word culture to cultivation, and therefore um, our 
culture in the human sense to cultivation of human nature and specifically to the cultivation of the human mind does allow for him to make this very graphic reduction to absurdity because you wouldn't treat the cultivation of a garden as consisting of its being littered with empty tin cans, whiskey bottles, uh, cigarette butts, and so on. That's not the last word, though, that Strauss has said about the notion of there being uh, not a culture, but many cultures. And so I'd like to make a brief aside before we return to liberal education here and now by briefly uh, mentioning a few remarks Dugan, <laughs> Dugan Strauss made. I'm doing a course reading group on Dugan too, so it comes to mind naturally. Some remarks that Strauss has made um, in an essay called Living Issues of German Post-War Philosophy, which you can find in Heinrich Meyer's book, Leo Strauss and the Theological Political Problem. Here, Strauss treats the idea of there being many cultures, um, not with a reduction to absurdity, but actually in a more philosophical manner. His account of living issues in post-war German philosophy starts with Spangler's cultural relativism. And he argues that if one starts with Spangler's cultural relativism, one arrives at the need for a comprehensive theoretical project that Spangler himself did not execute. And here's a summary of that argument. Originally, science and philosophy claimed to teach the truth, the truth that's valid for all men and indeed for all intelligent beings. Spangler, however, argued that there is no absolute truth, but only a variety of culturally situated truths. To which Strauss says that the only consequence which a theoretical man, a philosopher, could draw from this, from the claim that there's a variety of culturally situated truths, was that the task of philosophy is to understand the various cultures as expressions of their souls, which are the roots of all truth. Spangler's view, therefore, required as its basis an elaborate philosophy of man, which would need to show that man as the historical being is the origin of all meaning. In other words, that truth is essentially relative to human existence. Spangler did not provide that philosophical basis, but Heidegger did. And therefore, in Strauss's account of living issues in post-war German philosophy, Heidegger comes to light as a philosopher engaged in the only task a philosopher could undertake, given the thesis about the cultural situation, in other words, about culturally situated truths. Let me just clarify that before we return to Strauss. So here, remember, he says, it is not easy to say what culture is susceptible of being used in the plural means. And he defaults to the view that it means um, any pattern of conduct among human groups. That's the reduction to absurdity, because then you would have a culture of uh, Gang, gangs, let's say. But in that other work, he says, well, we could try to understand the thesis that there is a plurality of cultures by tracing it to the more fundamental philosophical thesis that there is a plurality, fundamental plurality of souls. And I mentioned in passing that Alexander Dugan is elaborating that on Heideggerian grounds with his thesis of the existential plurality of Daseins. Okay, so much for that. Back to liberal education here and now. Liberal education, he writes, is literate 
education of a certain kind. It's some sort of education in letters or through letters. And now he relates this directly to the requirements of democracy in an ideal sense. There's no need to make a case for literacy. Every voter knows that modern democracy stands or falls by literacy. Well, in order to understand that, we have to reflect on what is modern democracy. It was once said that democracy is the regime that stands or falls by virtue. A democracy is the regime in which all or most adults are men of virtue. And since virtue seems to require wisdom, a regime in which all or most adults are virtuous and wise, or a society in which all or most adults have developed their reason to a high degree. Democracy, in a word, is meant to be an aristocracy, which has broadened into a universal aristocracy. So democracy means that people are illiterate, virtuous, and wise, in which most of the people, most of the voters are um, literate, virtuous, and wise. And here, I think I have it. You know, there's this book you may have heard of, this uh, Patrick Deenan, who's speaking at the National Conservatism Conference in, week, in uh, Washington this weekend. He's got this book, Why Liberalism Failed. And in, in this book, there's a chapter on liberalism against liberal arts or against liberal education. And it's worth reading in conjunction with um, Strauss's reflections. But you see where Strauss said here that um, the original sense of democracy was that men should be virtuous and wise. There are some passages here in, uh, in this book that just bring that out using the university mottos. So they show that public university mottos may reflect this older virtue, uh, older view of the necessity of virtue, education, and democracy. So, for example, um, he writes, just to bring this out, just to put uh, some emphasis on Strauss's point here. So one sees this older tradition, perhaps most vividly in the aspirational mottos and symbolic seals that educational institutions adopted as goals for themselves and their students. One representative motto was that of Ohio University in Athens, Ohio, which was founded as American University in 1804, one of the first universities in what was then the unsettled West. Its original motto is still found on the university seal, religio doctrina uh, civilitatis. Um, so religion, true learning, civility, above all, virtue. And then another model, religion, morality, and knowledge being necessary to good government and the happiness of mankind, schools and the means of education shall forever be encouraged. So there you have the direct connection between government, education, and uh, virtue. But, oh, yeah. But, Strauss says, this ideal version of democracy as um, requiring literacy, education, and excellence, is now treated by political science as a sheer delusion. Not the ideal of democracy, but the real-life practice of democracy is what matters, which is um, so far from being universal aristocracy that it would be rather mass rule were it not for the fact that the mass cannot rule, but is ruled by elites, groupings of men who, for whatever reason, are on top or have a fair chance to arrive at the top. So here in the real democracy, not the ideal democracy of the, that is basically a universal aristocracy of the educated, but in real democracy, um, what's required for the smooth working of democracy is said to be electoral apathy, lack of public spirit. 
not indeed the salt of the earth, but the salt of modern democracy are those citizens who read nothing except the sports page and the comic section. Democracy is then not indeed mass rule, but mass culture. A mass culture is a culture which can be appropriated by the meanest or lowest capacities without any intellectual and moral effort whatsoever and at a very low monetary price. But even a mass culture and precisely a mass culture requires a constant supply of what are called new ideas, which are the products of what are called creative minds. Even singing commercials lose their appeal, you know, like uh, jingles, lose their appeal if they are not varied from time to time. But, okay, so in other words, so far from the ideal of the very educated, we have actually a low, easily digestible, um, apathetic, democratic mass culture with some um, rule by elites who are not elites by virtue of their excellence, but for some other, uh, they've taken that position for some other reason. And yet, nevertheless, democracy requires other qualities. Qualities of dedication, concentration, breadth, and depth. Thus, we understand most easily what liberal education means here and now. Liberal education is the counterpoison to mass culture, to the corroding effects of mass culture, to its inherent tendency to produce nothing but specialists without spirit, voluptuaries without heart, specialists without spirit or vision. Liberal education is the counterpoison to mass culture. It is the ladder by which we try to ascend from mass democracy to democracy as originally meant. Liberal education is the necessary endeavor to found an aristocracy within democratic mass society. It reminds those members of a mass democracy who have ears to hear of human greatness. That's the meaning of liberal democracy for us here and now. Now, Strauss turns to a potential objection. The objection concerns the requirement of um, literacy. Isn't there some way in which um, this relationship between liberal education, literacy, wisdom, and excellence somehow presupposes the goodness of modern democracy. So we're trying to elevate it to its ideal, but in doing so, aren't we somehow still presupposing its goodness? Can't we turn our backs on modern society and return to the life of pre-literate tribes, return to nature? Are we not crushed, nauseated, and degraded by the mass of printed material, the graveyards of so many beautiful and majestic forests? So you might think, well, that's, come on, sheer romanticism. Let's just return. And he's, you know, used here the evocative language of a sheer romanticism. Are we not crushed, nauseated, degraded, and so on um, by the graveyards of beautiful and majestic forests? And yet, it is not sufficient to say that this is mere romanticism, that we can't return to nature today. Because what if there's a giant global warming catastrophe or thermonuclear war that compels us after the catastrophe, to live in illiterate tribes. Won't, um, what then? So we should maybe desire or th at least think about what, it would, what the relationship is between our um, evaluation of democracy and literacy and the possibility that we will return to a pre-literate state. Um, 
And here, Strauss has an argument that shows that the desire to return to a pre-literate state is self-contradictory. Here's the argument. An illiterate society at its best is a society ruled by age-old ancestral custom, which it traces to original founders, to gods or the sons of gods, or to pupils of gods. So a society that doesn't have instituted learning in the best case is a society with um, a, that sees itself as having good ancestral origin, in the best case, divine ancestral origins. But the people in such a society, they don't have direct contact with the original founders. The founding gods or sons of gods um, or those instructed by the gods are not now alive. It's a traditional society. And the people who live in it can't know whether the fathers or grandfathers have not deviated from what the original founders meant or have not defaced the divine message by merely human additions or subtractions. So an illiterate society can't consistently act on the principle that what's best is the oldest. It doesn't have access to the oldest, the evidence of what the oldest said and to, its, to the coherence of present society with the, by assumption, good traditional society. So in other words, he says it's contradictory to wish to return to illiteracy. And here you have a couple of very beautiful lines where we are compelled to live with books. But life is too short to live with any but the greatest books. In this respect, as well as in some others, we do well to take as our model that one among the greatest minds who, because of his common sense, is the mediator between us and the greatest minds. So who is this person who, because of his common sense, is the mediator between us and the greatest minds? Socrates. Socrates never wrote a book, but he read books. And Strauss here quotes the statement of Socrates, which says almost everything that has to be said on our subject with the noble simplicity and quiet greatness of the ancients. So let me now just read to you this um, quotation that Strauss gives of Socrates. Just as others are pleased by a good horse or dog or bird, I myself am pleased to an even higher degree by good friends. And the treasures of the wise men of old, which they left behind by writing them in books, I unfold and go through them together with my friends. And if we see something good, we pick it out and regard it as a great gain if we thus become useful to one another, unquote. The man who reports this utterance adds the remark, when I heard this, it seemed to me both that Socrates was blessed and that he was leading those listening to him toward perfect gentlemanship. We're compelled to live with books, with the greatest books, and Socrates is a model for how we can go through those great books with our friends to find the good things that are useful. Education to human excellence, liberal education, Strauss writes, consists in reminding oneself of human excellence, of human greatness. We have to remind ourselves of it, maybe even more now than ever. We cannot think highly enough, Strauss says, of what liberal education is meant to be. So I invite those of you who are listening, who may not be familiar with Strauss or in general with uh, this type of defense of liberal democracy, uh, sorry, of liberal education, to ask yourselves, what is your initial sense of what a liberal education means? Because some people might think, you know, it's just people go to a liberal arts college, they read some old books, they get together and waste their time, and they become largely unemployable. But here he says that liberal education is a reminder of human excellence. 
And we can't think highly enough of what it is meant to be as a reminder of human excellence. And here now he makes an important transition from liberal education to philosophy. We have heard, he says, Plato's suggestion that education in the highest sense is philosophy. Philosophy is quest for wisdom or quest for knowledge regarding the most important, the highest, or the most comprehensive things. Such knowledge, Plato suggested, is virtue and happiness. So the quest for wisdom, the quest for knowledge regarding the most important things is philosophy, is virtue, and is happiness. But wisdom is inaccessible to man, and hence virtue and happiness will always be imperfect, never complete. In spite of this, the philosopher who is not simply wise, because he's in search of wisdom, in quest of wisdom, rather than in its possession, is declared to be the only true king. He's declared to possess all the excellences of which man's mind is capable to the highest degree. From this, we must draw the conclusion that we, can't, we cannot be philosophers. We cannot acquire the highest form of education. We, those of us whom Strauss is addressing um, with this defense of liberal education. And we must not be deceived by the fact that we meet many people who say they are philosophers. For those people employ a loose expression, which is perhaps necessitated by administrative convenience. Often they mean merely that they are members of philosophy departments. And it is as absurd to expect members of philosophy departments to be philosophers as it is to expect members of art departments to be artists. He's inviting us to have a much uh, deeper sense of what it means to philosophize and to be a philosopher than to be um, a professor of philosophy. So we can't be philosophers, but we can love philosophy. We can try to philosophize. And this philosophizing consists at any rate primarily and in a way chiefly in listening to the conversation between the great philosophers or more generally and more cautiously between the greatest minds and therefore in studying the great books. So we have liberal education as the study of the great books. And in we, if we listen to the conversation between the great minds, we read the great books and make of them a dialogue, even if each one of them constitutes in itself a monologue, then we can, um, that is our way of philosophizing, of loving philosophy, of listening to the conversation between the great philosophers. And here, you remember earlier, Strauss had said, well, voice to the criticism that someone might make that the study of the great books is parochial if it just focuses on the Western tradition. Here's an important corrective to that. It is merely an unfortunate necessity which prevents us from listening to the greatest minds of India and of China or of any other great civilization. We do not understand their languages and we cannot learn all languages. So that means Strauss does not believe that the only great books are the great books of the Western tradition. It's just that in order to study our great books, you must learn at least uh, Greek, Latin, maybe Hebrew, Arabic, and so on. And you can't learn all languages. That makes it prohibitive for you to study the great thinkers of other places. But those of you who do speak other languages, do study other languages, um, you should know that Strauss acknowledges great minds and great philosophers there too. Great books there too. So... Liberal education, therefore, consists in listening to the conversation among the greatest minds. However, there is a great difficulty here. The difficulty is that we ourselves must bring about the conversation between the great minds. The greatest minds utter monologues even when they write dialogues. So even Plato's dialogues are a monologue. 
as he'll explain in a minute. And our task is to make in, of those monologues a dialogue. We must say, well, how does what Plato said compare to what Nietzsche said? How does what Aristotle said compare to what Heidegger said? How can we make sense of the distinction between uh, Locke and Hobbes and Kant and Machiavelli? When we study the history of political philosophy, we make a dialogue of these great minds. But the great minds themselves utter monologues even when they utter dialogues, he says. When we look at the Platonic dialogues, we observe there's never a dialogue among minds of the highest order. All Platonic dialogues are dialogues between a superior man and men inferior to him. Plato apparently felt that one could not write a dialogue. Sorry, I just have to add someone in here. Plato apparently felt that one could not write a dialogue between two men of the highest order. We, who make a dialogue or a conversation among the great minds, do, therefore, something which the greatest minds were unable to do. They didn't think a conversation of the great minds was possible, and yet we ourselves must stage a conversation of the great minds. Let us face this difficulty, a difficulty so great that it seems to condemn liberal education as an absurdity. Since the great minds contradict one another regarding the most important matters, they compel us to judge of their monologues, of their works. And we cannot take on trust what any one of them says. On the other hand, we can't help but notice that we're not competent to be judges. That's the situation. And this situation, this state of things, is concealed from us by a number of facile delusions. We somehow believe that our point of view is superior, higher than those of the greatest minds. Either because our point of view is that of our time, and our time being later than the time of the greatest minds can be presumed to be superior to their minds. In other words, it's the 21st century. We're going to learn from someone who wrote 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago or 2,000 years ago. Get out of here. Who are you kidding? Or, so again, we somehow believe that our point of view is superior, higher than those of the greatest minds, either because our point of view is that of our time and our time being later then the time of the greatest minds can be presumed to be superior to their times, or else because we believe that each of the greatest minds was right from his point of view, but not simply right. So we either think, uh, pr like progressivists, that we know more than they did then because we live now and they live then, or each of them was had their own truth because we know that uh, what they thought was simply the truth was really just somehow their cultural perspective. Um, we know that there cannot be the simply true substantive view. But only, uh, but we know that every comprehensive view is relative to a specific perspective or that all comprehensive views are mutually exclusive and none of them can be simply true. Strauss calls those facile delusions. They conceal from us our true situation and they all amount to this, that we are or can be wiser than the wisest men of the past. We have to learn to reject the view that we're wiser than the wisest men of the past in order to have a conversation between the great minds that constitutes a liberal education and a love of philosophy. So we have to face our situation, our awesome situation. Again, what makes it awesome is that we have to be um, attentive listeners to constructing a dialogue among the great minds, even though we're not competent to judge in that dialogue. Um, we just have to face that situation if we want to carve out a space for an aristocracy within the context of mass democracy and only in that way to deal adequately with the crisis of liberal democracy, modern liberal democracy.
Each of us here is compelled to find his bearings by his own powers, however defective they may be. Um, just getting to the last two paragraphs here of chapter one. We have no comfort, Strauss writes, other than that inherent in this activity. So we're not trying to be socially edifying or anything, but we actually have the inherent pleasure of the task itself. And here there's a passage that is just so beautiful um, that I'd like to read it to you, basically in its entirety. We cannot exert our understanding, Strauss writes, without from time to time understanding something of importance. And this act of understanding may be accompanied by the awareness of our understanding, by the understanding of understanding. We recognize, we know in self-reflection that we've know, come to know something important. And this is so high, so pure, so noble in experience that Aristotle could ascribe it to his God. The experience is entirely independent of whether what we understand primarily is pleasing or displeasing, fair or ugly. It leads us to realize that all evils are in a sense necessary if there is to be understanding. It enables us to accept all evils which befall us and which may break our hearts in the spirit of good citizens of the city of God. Now listen to this. By becoming aware of the dignity of the mind, we realize the true ground of the dignity of man, and therewith the goodness of the world, whether we understand it as created or as uncreated, which is the home of man because it is the home of the human mind. I'll have some commentary to make on that, but let's just read the last paragraph here. Liberal education, which consists in the constant intercourse with the greatest minds, remember, life is too short to read any but the greatest books, uh, constant intercourse with the greatest minds. It's a training in the highest form of modesty, not to say humility. It is at the same time a training in boldness. It demands from us the complete break with the noise, the rush, the thoughtlessness, and the cheapness of the vanity fair of the intellectuals as well as of their enemies. It demands from us the boldness to regard Average, yeah, it demands from us the boldness implied in the resolve to regard the accepted views as mere opinions. Liberal education is, a, is liberation from vulgarity. The Greeks had a beautiful word for vulgarity. They called it aperokalia, lack of experience in things beautiful. Last line of the essay, liberal education supplies us with experience in things beautiful. A couple of quick comments here. Liberal education demands from us a complete break with the noise, the rush, the thoughtlessness, and the cheapness, you might thought that he was going to say here, of mass culture, you know, of the uh, sports page in the comic section. But he says, of the vanity fair of the intellectuals as well as of their enemies. That means we must rise above even the public intellectualism of the culture wars. That's an important point. And on this view about um, becoming aware of the dignity of the mind, we realize the true ground of the dignity of man. Strauss's view is that um, if we ground the dignity of man and the dignity of the mind, that is a classical view. Because the modern view is that everybody has, is, um, let me put it this way. The modern view does not ground the dignity of man and the dignity of the mind. That's worth considering. 
Lastly, I wanted to make here what might be an unusual connection for some of you, um, not so much for others of you who know that I do work on Alexander Dugin and on other political philosophers. This view that we can't exert our understanding without from time to time understanding something and understanding our understanding, and that this experience is so high, pure, and noble that Aristotle could ascribe it to its God, that, that how would you put it? The almost reverence for, for thought at its best, for thought at its highest, for the experience of ourselves as a, as a thinking being. So much so that we can understand the world as the home of man because it's the home of the human mind um, has been echoed in a different way recently by thinkers who are, unlike Strauss, not defenders of... Uh, the elevation of liberal democracy, but who are opponents of liberal democracy, and yet still have this high reverence for philosophy. So just permit me to read you um, an excerpt from something that Alexander Dugan posted recently. It's available on 4pt.su, and it's titled Notes on Thought. Now, I won't read the whole thing, but I would like to show that they both have this deep reverence for thought. Everyone thinks that they can think. And, what, and they think that what they're usually doing is called thinking. This is a misconception. So not all thought processes. Remember, Strauss doesn't say just any thought process is that high sense of the human mind. But it's actually understanding and um, understanding your understanding. So those who have a certain culture of thought and are capable of self-reflection enter into what are virtually mechanical processes of circulating certain schools, trage trajectories, and systems. So they may have been trained to think like Marxists. They may have been trained to think like postmodernists. They may even have been trained to think like Strauss Strauss Straussians. But their thinking is uh, a mechanical process that follows semantic rules and canons. In the best case, they can change, add to, correct, or amend something in the system, but certainly nothing fundamental. You know, that's almost even like the philosophy professors as opposed to the philosophers or the great minds that you are lucky if one of them is alive at all um, in your century. This is how dissertations teach, quote unquote, to think. That is, of course, when they're honestly, thoroughly and independently conceived and written. But it does not yet mean thinking. This is a preparatory stage, sometimes an important one, but is far from the ultimate goal. And it does not necessarily lead to thought. And moreover, it can become an obstacle to thought. So you have, then, you see this mechanical view of thinking, which doesn't count. The second case is uh, people who have no sense of entering into an organized and structured intellectual environment. They don't know that they're, as I said, like Marxists or postmodernists or Straussians or that they think in one set of terms or another. The first group at least knows that they're operating within some school of thought or some uh, paradigm or some structure. But the second case, these people are ordinary users of thinking who use ready-made programs without wondering about their algorithms. Here, quote-unquote, thought is understood to be fragments of random influences and instances of scattered and unsystematized knowledge and formulas whose origins remain unknown. So they may be talking about, uh, you know, values and equality and social justice and this and that or whatever else, and they're just using bits and pieces of more elaborated systems of thought without any understanding of their underlying foundations. They are freely recycling rational calculations um, whose origins they are unfamiliar with. That is banal consciousness, not thought at all. 
it's the waste or byproduct of the bodily machinery. The first one that he described is an act belonging to a higher system of thought, but it still is um, not, properly speaking, thinking. In all of these cases, we don't think, but rather participate in some mechanical process. Sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's opaque. Where is thought then on a different plane? Thought is born and comes into being in a completely different dimension. Compared to what we're doing when it seems to us that we are thinking, it is something radically other, something radically different. The experience of thought means the collapse of everything we usually take thought to mean. It can only begin when what we make thought out to be is finished. Um, Everyday delirium, in other words, the unthinkingness of the masses and even of not of the masses, of the elites and all the rest at times, and intellectual scholarly citations are barriers to the birth of thought. Here he writes, I don't think uh, this is a more immoderate than Strauss would ever sanction. They should be ab- abolished. Thought is born out of a moment of madness or nonsense when the rotation of the gears of both everyday and scientific consciousness is suddenly stopped. So it's an interruption of some ordinary mechanical operations and processes. Thought requires colossal superhuman effort to overcome the fundamental threshold. Thought is incredibly difficult. It's a feat. But at the same time, and here's where you get close to the, as I say, sort of like shuddering reverence with which they treat the experience of thinking at its peak. At the same time, he writes, it is transformative illumination. Not merely some particular thought, but thought as such, you know, in its pure guise transformative illumination thought is not the creation of systems or doctrines which are consequences and not even necessary ones the main aspect of thought is not its result and results in manifestation manifestations but thought itself its being thought irreversibly changes anyone who has at least once approached it it's transformative it's a conversion experience think about the image of the cave in plato's republic to ascend in education from that which we take for granted through mechanical operations, the shadows cast on the wall, to ascend to the domain of true thought is a transformative illumination. Thought gives us um, thought gives us the first view of who it is that is thinking, the subject. In other words, you can only understand the human being on the basis of the peak of our activity, thinking. But it thought is not us, Dugan says. It's the radical other in us, someone hidden inside. To think means to present the possibility of emerging out of the inner darkness into the inner light. In other words, there's a reverence for philosophizing that characterizes um, liberal education in the classical sense, as Strauss has outlined it in his essay. But that can also be characteristic of thinkers who disagree about political matters fundamentally like Strauss and Dugan do. So we are, um, we've gone through the preface and we've gone through the first chapter. I've mentioned some supplementary material. We're one hour in, and I would like to just pull one remark out of the second chapter to help emphasize this point that people trained in a liberal education will not necessarily see eye to eye politically. Strauss says um, the following about that. And then I'll take, uh, you know, open it up to questions and see whether we want to go through chapter two, because I do have notes prepared for it. Strauss says, give me a moment here. We must not expect that liberal education, okay, 
will lead all who benefit from it to understand their civic responsibility in the same way or to agree politically. So let's take the example of Strauss and Dugan. They both have a reverence for philosophy, a love of philosophizing. And yet we can't expect that that in its highest sense, liberal education as a love of philosophy will lead all who benefit from it to understand their civic responsibility in the same way or to agree politically. Karl Marx, the father of communism, and Friedrich Nietzsche, the grand, the step-grandfather of fascism, were liberally educated on a level to which we cannot even hope to aspire. But perhaps one can say that their grandiose um, failures make it easier for us who have experienced those failures to understand again the old saying that wisdom cannot be separated from moderation, and hence to understand that wisdom requires uh, loyalty to constitutionalism. We can get into that later if you want, but you see he says, Marx and Nietzsche, the originators in some way, however many steps removed of communism and fascism, were liberally educated beyond what we can even hope for. And that's no guarantee that they support one and the same um, political recommendations. So far from being the case, they led to immoderate political extremes of communism on one hand, fascism on the other. So this relationship between liberal education as necessary to elevate a liberal democracy, and yet ultimately being no guarantee for the defense of liberal democracy is uh, an important point. So much for so much for chapter one, for the preface chapter one, and as I say, a little bit of supplementary material. Let me just stop and ask, is there any point that you'd like to discuss? And uh, we can think about whether or not to go through chapter two. Well, I suggest um, that we do go through chapter two. And if you don't have the time to stick around, which I hope you do, I'm recording this and I'll be posting it. And for the benefit of anybody who's watching, I think it's a good idea to um, proceed. Chapter two is, um, is important because it's a presentation. So Strauss was asked by the Fund for Adult Education to speak on the topic, liberal democracy and responsibility. Uh, and as you'll see in that chapter, the request was originally for him to clarify some things that he had said, two sentences that he had um, written in the first essay, What is Liberal Education? But before he even begins to respond to that request to clarify two sentences from What is Liberal Education? So I'm just going to make a little adjustment here. He, um, he voices some misgivings about the theme itself liberal education and responsibility, and about the audience, you know, that he's addressing adult educators. So what are his misgivings? First, he said he's primarily concerned with the goal or end of education at its best or highest, the education of the perfect prince, as it were, rather than with the how of education or the conditions of education. So addressing a group of educators, maybe they were concerned with method, how do you do it? But here he says that his concern is with the goal of education, with it's, in the best sense, the education of the perfect prince. Think about that. Um, and that means that education is not simply a method of application that you could learn and apply with indifference to the natures of the educator and the educated. In fact, Strauss says that the most important things are the nature of the educator and of the educated, as opposed to, let's say, some method. 
Strauss even states this rule of thumb for teachers to give them a sense of their duty. He says, always assume that there is one silent student in your class who is by far superior to you in head and heart. By which he means, as he says, do not have too high an opinion of your importance, of your own importance, and have the highest opinion of your duty or responsibility. This last phrase, duty or responsibility, tells you about Strauss's second misgiving. The issue is with the word responsibility. As for the word responsibility, he says, in the sense in which it is now frequently used, it is a neologism. It is, I believe, the fashionable substitute for words like duty, conscience, or virtue. And um, here we should read what he says about that and have some comments to make also. This is on page 10. Remember, the idea here is that to speak of responsibility is somehow not as accurate as to speak in the old way uh, of duty. We frequently say of a man that he is a responsible man, where people of former generations would have said that he is a just man or a conscientious man or a virtuous man. Primarily, a man is responsible if he can be held accountable for what he does. For example, for a murder. Being responsible is so far the same from being uh, virtuous that is the, it is the mere condition for being either virtuous or vicious. You know, you're only responsible for your good or evil acts. You can be responsible for good or evil acts. You see, it can go either way. So it's not a synonym for being uh, just. It's a precondition for being either just or unjust. Um, and he says there's a kinship between responsibility uh, let me put it this way. He says that we seem to loathe the grand old words and perhaps also the things which they indicate, like decency or justice as opposed to responsibility or some uh, up-to-date jargon. We seem to loathe the grand old words and perhaps also the things they indicate and to prefer more subdued expressions out of delicacy or because they are more businesslike. Um, but he says he was hesitant to speak on the topic of liberal education and responsibility because he was aware of his ignorance as to what the substitution of responsibility for duty and virtue means. And here I should say that it's a, let's call it at least the commonplace of Straussian approach to um, certain words that we have to dig beneath them to see what grand old words and grand old things they were designed to replace in a business-like fashion. So, for example, people speak a lot about values. You know, what are our values? What are your values? My values and your values and so on. And um, Alan Bloom, one of Strauss's students, in The Closing of the American Mind, did an analysis of what the shift from virtues to values, from virtue to values, implies. What is the deeper fundamental shift in our understanding of what it means to be human if we no longer speak about human excellence um, the excellence of human nature, which would be reflected in talk of virtues, and instead speak of those things that are important just because we prefer them, which are our values. And then we take a step further to say that there's no way of adjudicating between different values. There's value relativism. So the shift from the language of virtue to the language of values has a deeper fundamental philosophical meaning. And here Strauss says the same about the shift from uh, duty to responsibility. So 
Ben Strauss mentions that he was relieved to learn that he had only been asked to elaborate on two sentences from the previous essay, that liberal education is the latter by which we try to ascend from mass democracy to democracy as originally meant, and that liberal education is the necessary endeavor to found an aristocracy within mass society. What, what does that mean? What does he mean by that? That's what these adult educators want to know. What does he mean by that? And here he begins an important um, analysis about what liberal or the virtue of liberality meant classically and how it relates uh, to non-democratic, but rather aristocratic social and political orders. Classically, liberality was conduct appropriate to a free man as distinguished from a slave. A slave is a human being who lives for another human being and has, in a sense, no life of his own, no time of his own. The master or free man has his time for himself, for the pursuits appropriate to him, politics and philosophy. However, many free people live like slaves because they have to work for their livelihood and have little time left over, little time for politics and philosophy. Free men without leisure or free time are the poor, the majority of citizens. You know, everybody has to work to make a living, but therefore they don't have the leisure time with which to engage in politics and philosophy. The truly free man is the man of leisure who must possess some wealth that does not require his constant care. Because remember, if it required his constant care, then he wouldn't have the leisure that he needs to engage in politics and philosophy. Just one minute here. So the free man is not, for instance, an entrepreneur, an entrepreneurial busybody. He can't always be, he can't be working 80-hour weeks. Um, he should also live in the city, not in the country, if he's to be involved in politics. Otherwise, he's too far from where the action is. The free man with leisure becomes a gentleman through liberal education, as discussed in part in the previous chapter. The gentleman, those people with leisure to have a liberal education, are concerned with the good order of the soul and of the city. Their education is above all formation of character and taste through study, example of the poets. But gentlemen also need training in other things if they're going to be involved in political life. For example, they need to know counting, calculation, uh, he put res wrestling, uh, training in weapons, horsemanship. Um, and they must also know how to order their affairs and the affairs of their city well and nobly in speech and deed. And how do they acquire that skill? How do they learn to do all of those things? Well, they talk to elder statesmen and to experienced gentlemen, and they pay for instruction in the art of speaking. They read histories and books of travel. And they meditate on the writings, uh, again, here of the poets or of the historians, and they take part in political life. So to do all of that, they must have time and money. You can't pay for courses in um, speaking and horse riding, weaponry, and have time to read the books and think about them if you're working all the time or you know, 40 hour a week to come home and sleep or 80 hour a week to take care of your business. The gentlemen believe, the people so trained believe that they should rule. The city as a whole is too poor to enable everyone to bring up his sons or children to become gentlemen. If you want political equality, so he says, not everybody can have this education. There's just not enough money to go around. 
And if you say that there's a natural equality, that in principle, if we all had the time, in principle, we could all become gentlemen. So if you start with the principle of natural equality there, and you want political equality to reflect natural equality, but there, you can't actually establish leisure for everybody, you'll bring everything down to the lowest common denominator, to a state of universal drabness. But Strauss writes only on the ground of a narrow conception of justice, owing its evidence to the power of the ignoble passion of envy, must one prefer a flat building which is everywhere equally drab to a structure which from a broad base of drabness rises to a narrow plateau of distinction and grace and therefore gives some grace and distinction to its very base? There must then be a few who are wealthy and well-born and many who are poor and of obscure origin. We could have the project of reducing political equality to natural equality, but then we will have a low common denominator with no true human excellence. Uh, and that is motivated by envy and ignoble passion. All right, well, what about making the gentleman rule on the basis of popular election? The issue is that the higher, the, the the higher in this case, the gentleman, would be responsible to the lower. So if it's responsible government, the people vote in their um, rulers, the gentlemen, the gentlemen are therefore responsible to the people, but that is would appear to be against nature for the higher to answer to the lower. The two groups disagree fundamentally about the end of man or the highest good. And the gentleman cannot possibly give a sufficient or intelligible account of their way of life to the others. while being responsible to themselves, not to the people, to themselves for the well-being of the vulgar, they cannot be responsible to the vulgar or to the uneducated masses. In other words, acknowledgement of the class of gentlemen, of this um, educated minority, leads one to reject democracy. Democracy, roughly, is the regime in which a majority of adult free males, or we can extend that more generally to a majority of um, adults more simply, rule, but only a minority of them are educated. In other words, the principle of democracy is not excellence, but freedom. It is the rule of the uneducated. The liberal education of the gentleman, however, fosters civic responsibility and is required for the exercise of civic responsibility. So the gentleman should rule. It would be wrong for them uh, to be ruled by their inferiors by education or to be responsible to their inferiors by education. And yet they don't rule strictly in their own interest, but they rule for the well-being of the whole. Um, but they can't be responsible to the whole because the many and the educated can't see eye to eye about the ends of human life or about the highest good. So that's the first step, the distinction between the many or the vulgar and the gentleman. Strauss now distinguishes the gentleman from another class, the gentleman from the philosophers. So you remember that he said that the tasks that are appropriate to or becoming of a gentleman are philosophy and politics, politics and philosophy. So therefore, we must discuss a little bit about what's, what this philosophy part means. Philosophy is of a higher rank than politics. Philosophy is quest for truth about the most weighty matters or for the comprehensive truth. The truth about the whole. Philosophy is the science of the whole. Politics is the pursuit of certain ends, certain specific ends, 
but it is not the study, the comprehensive study of those ends themselves. So Strauss says that the distinction between decent ends and ends that are not decent, so decent politics will pursue decent ends, but the distinction between decent ends and ends that are not decent depends on a higher study, such as the study of the unchangeable order of the whole, of the cosmos, or of the human soul, on the basis of which we can distinguish between right and wrong actions. In other words, politics takes for granted some things that philosophy subjects to study. And philosophy, therefore, is higher in rank. And liberal education, as the study of the great books and as the conversation um, among the great minds, is thus preparation for philosophy. Philosophy transcends gentlemanship. Remember, concern with where you have to have horse riding and all of those other trainings. It transcends gentlemanship. Here's how. The gentleman accepts on trust certain most weighty things that for the philosopher are themes of investigation and of questioning. A political man engaged with serious political affairs, which he treats of in his leisure time, and which he has been well-trained to deal with, may nevertheless be taking for granted, assuming as given, the political ends that the philosopher is required to investigate and to question, maybe even at least in himself and for himself to refute or to uh, subject to, to uh, skepticism. So the excellence, the, the excellence of these two tasks is not strictly speaking the same. Remember, it would be inappropriate for a gentleman to call into question the ends that he defends, whereas it's part of the excellence of a philosopher to subject everything to its proper investigation and questioning. Moreover, the gentleman needs wealth. You remember, he has to pay for teachers and so on. But the philosopher does not. Socrates lived in 10,000-fold poverty. So, and uh, Strauss tells the following story. and relates the following story about Socrates. Once he saw many people following a horse and looking at it. And he heard some of them conversing about it. In his surprise, he approached the groom with the question whether the horse was rich. The horse, uh, sorry, the groom looked at him as if he were not only grossly ignorant, but not even sane. How can a horse have any property? Like, what kind of stupid question is that? Is the horse rich? How can a horse have any property? At that, Socrates understandably recovered, for he thus learned that it is lawful for a poor horse to become good, provided it possesses a naturally good soul. So it may then be lawful for Socrates to become a good man, despite his poverty. There's no necessary connection between philosophy, wanting to become good, and um, having money. The training of a gentleman is distinct from the training of a philosopher. Since the philosopher doesn't need property, he also doesn't need the lawful arts by which one defends one property, one's property. He doesn't need to always be learning how to defend uh, in courts of law and so on, specifically as concerns uh, his property. Now, here Strauss makes the suggestion that the gentleman's virtue or excellence is a reflection of the philosopher's virtue. It's political reflection. So the, remember, the vulgar, the gentleman, and the philosophers. And the gentlemen are a political reflection of philosophical excellence. 
that the gentlemen are a political reflection of the philosopher, he writes, is the ultimate justification of the rule of the gentleman. So a democracy of the vulgar would not have any presence in it, even as a reflection of the true human excellence that is uh, comprised by philosophy, philosophizing with the love of philosophy. The city needs philosophy, but only immediately or indirectly, not to say in diluted form. The best option is an educated aristocracy in a mixed regime. Now, here Strauss offers also the analysis of this mixed regime, where he says that we moderns also support a mixed regime. I don't know where all of you are. I'm in Canada, where we have uh, a constitutional monarchy and a parliamentary democracy. We have a Senate and a House and so on. In other words, we have, uh, in principle, we have this mixed regime reflecting various of these um, classes to one extent or another. But modern republicanism is nevertheless distinct from ancient mixed regime because the modern do doctrine starts with the natural equality of all men and leads to the assertion that sovereignty belongs to the people. Moreover, the aim of the modern republic, I mean the basis rather of the modern republic, is the desire of each to improve his material conditions so the commercial and industrial elite predominate. I mean, I can ask you, you know, uh, it is billionaires who are successful in business who get um, promoted and not necessarily 10,000-fold people in 10,000-fold poverty who have read good books together with their friends and undergone uh, a conversation of the great minds in adjudicating among the great books. So a modern Republican reflects the desire, modern Republicanism reflects the desire of each to improve his material conditions and the commercial and industrial elite predominate. Strauss argues that classical Republicanism required the religious education of the masses and the liberal education of the rulers. Now, this we're not talking here about uh, machinations and manipulation and so on. The point is that both the mass or vulgar class and the elite class they didn't get the comic section and the sports section, but rather they got an education in morality and some of the virtues and virtue and excellence and in wisdom, religious education and liberal education. But both forms of education have decayed, and that may be the cause of our present predicament, the crisis of liberal democracy. Incidentally, an analysis shared more or less by Patrick Deneen, Why Liberalism Failed, a book that was uh, widely read and discussed. And Deneen, as I mentioned earlier, is presenting as uh, one of the presenters at the National Conservatism Conference in Washington this weekend. And uh, I gave examples earlier where he shows that this training in uh, virtue and wisdom used to constitute an important part of, of democratic education and has been replaced. And actually, I'll read you something else from that shortly. So Strauss says that that religious and liberal education has been, uh, has been, how does he put it here? Um, yeah, has decayed, has decayed. Both forms of education have decayed. The classics saw that the end of the philosopher, his goal or purpose, that towards which he strives, his telos, the end of the, of the, um, a philosopher is radically different from the end or goal pursued by non-philosophers. 
But the moderns think that philosophy can be identified with an end capable of actually being pursued by all men. So an important point in Strauss's writings generally is that philosophy itself underwent the shift from the ancient to the modern alternatives. The quarrel between the ancients and moderns that we mentioned at the beginning uh, concerns also the understanding of philosophy itself. Because the modern conception of philosophy is that it's primarily concerned with method, because method is something that is in principle universally applicable. Anybody can learn and apply and benefit from the fruits of method. The modern conception of philosophy is fundamentally democratic. It aims to improve people's lives, for instance, through the conquest of nature in the service of comfortable self-preservation. So Strauss has an argument that philosophy in modernity became equated with natural philosophy, the study of, of uh, things that are embodied and have motion, in other words, of the natural elements, and that it became, tech, it set itself as, it set as its goal the mastery of nature for the relief of man's estate. So what we call science, technological progress, you have better fans and faster cars and all the rest of it, is, um, is modern philosophy trying to make itself useful to the many through technological conquest of nature with the aim of um, ever-increasing comfortable self-preservation. And you might think that, well, that's not democratic because the scientific discoveries are made by a few people, to which Strauss responds that discovery it may be for the few, but the commercialization and trade extends the benefits of those discoveries far and wide. And the discoveries are made with an eye to basically um, their mass uh, extension. In the wake of this new, so people had to become enlightened as to their self-interest. And in the wake of this new enlightened self-interest of the people and the popularization of philosophy in their service, moral education fell by the wayside. If you just focus on the on comfortable self-preservation and the ever easier satisfaction of your desires, as he believes modern philosophy ended up doing, then moral education falls by the wayside. The moral education of the people, the moral education of their rulers. There was a rush to give people their freedom without any moral support from religious and liberal education. The idea that dignity is dignity of the mind, which we discussed earlier, was rejected as undemocratic. Sometimes the uneducated were even seen to have an advantage over the educated. So not only were the educated uh, displaced, but they were even replaced by the uneducated in this hierarchy at times because they were seen to have the advantage that they speak with more authentic feeling and better natural impulses than the educated. So there you can have like the you know popular populist rejection of the educated elites as being overly, um, you know, they've been... They've lost their natural, the elites, educated elites have not lost the natural impulse that the, uh, the raw people can give voice to. So in short, Strauss says in his analysis, not excellence, as was the case in ancient liberalism and classical political philosophy, but rather freedom came to prevail. If we look then only at what is peculiar to our age or characteristic of our age, we see hardly more than the interplay of mass taste with high grade, but, but strictly speaking, unprincipled efficiency. So you will have, you, not you, the masses will have a low desire and the technicians will satisfy it efficiently. But both the desires are uh, lack a moral basis in training and their satisfaction lacks a moral basis in training. And that is a, uh, that is a problem. 
that is a problem analyzed again, as I say, in this and other books, why liberalism failed. But one of the first deep analyses of the logic of that failure is, is 60 years earlier in these remarks that we're reading by Strauss. In this situation that he just described, the insufficiently educated are bound to have an unreasonably strong influence on education, on the determination of the means and ends of education. There will be an overemphasis on specialization, which comes at the cost of a broadening and deepening of the human being. And what were once areas of genuine education become superficial. So he says classes on Western civilization, general classes on Western civilization, that will just be meeting some, they will be meeting a superficial demand and they won't actually give us the breadth and depth that we expected from a classical education. The, the gigantic spectacle thus provided is in the best case exciting and entertaining, not instructive and educating. And here he draws um, a pretty powerful distinction between what you can expect from modern scholarship as far as training in human things goes versus uh, the classical alternatives. A hundred pages, no, ten pages of Herodotus introduce us immeasurably better into the mysterious unity of oneness and variety in human things than many volumes written in the spirit predominant of our age. So much is written and so much is said that is so far from what's essential that 10 pages of a classical text can give us immeasurably better introduction into the mysterious unity and variety of human things. So he says, although we're compelled in our situation to become specialists, we can at least specialize in the most weighty matters for study of the great books. Um, here now comes that passage that I mentioned earlier, which is um, that we must not expect liberal education um, will ever lead to a, the same political positions, because you have Marx and Nietzsche who are both liberally educated to an extent we can't even hope to be disagreeing deeply. But also we can't expect that liberal education will ever become universal education. It will always remain the obligation and the privilege of a minority. I don't need to tell you that democratic um, anti-elitists don't like that, don't like Strauss for saying it, don't like Strauss's students for trying to put it into practice. That liberal education will always remain the obligation and the privilege of a minority. And yet we have heard some of the arguments for why it's necessary in a liberal democracy. Um, now, again, about the point about Marx and Nietzsche, you would have to ask ourselves whether what Strauss says here is totally defensible. He says that um, their failures, Marx, Nietzsche, communism, fascism, the immoderate alternatives that nevertheless represent a liberal education, make it easier for us who have experienced those failures to understand again the old saying that wisdom cannot be separated from moderation. And hence, to understand that wisdom requires unhesitating loyalty to a decent constitution and even to the cause of constitutionalism. Moderation will protect us against the twin dangers of visionary expectations from politics and unmanly contempt for politics. Liberal education, the conversation of the great minds. The great minds don't agree and we have to adjudicate. The great minds can be radical and not moderate. And yet, having lived through the consequences of political programs that somehow they stand at the foundation of, 
we are reminded that our training in liberal education should be moderate. That wisdom and moderation are like this. Moderation will protect us once again against the twin dangers of visionary expectations from politics and unmanly contempt for politics. Finally, the last lines of the chapter, and then I'll we'll see if there's anything you'd like to discuss and end it. Liberal education then ultimately consists in learning to listen to still small voices and therefore in becoming deaf to loudspeakers. Loudspeakers, you know, it's not just the noise, even of the culture wars, even of the public intellectuals of the great books, the still small voices. Liberal education seeks light and therefore shuns the limelight. That's how he ends this chapter. So let's just take quick stock of uh, where we've come and then see if there's any point you'd like to discuss. We began with the preface, the distinction between liberals and conservatives here and now. We saw that they had in common a root in liberal democracy, but that nevertheless, liberals and conservatives disagreed about the end of politics, liberals sharing the view that it should lead to a homogenous, classless society, having that in common with communists, and conservatives defending heterogeneity, particular society, and closed society based on uh, partial opinions. Nevertheless, Strauss analyzed that liberals and conservatives, like communists, and we added fascists, share a root in the modern break with the classical political alternative, the modern break affected by Hobbes and Machiavelli. Therefore, Strauss opened up the quarrel between the ancients and the moderns to see what the ancient and classical alternative was. He warned us against the assumption that the modern alternative is better just because it's modern. And he gave us access into the ancient or classical alternative through an analysis of what it used to mean to be liberal. In other words, to have the virtue of liberality, how that relates to property, leisure, and concern with politics and philosophy. And we now see that it depends on a liberal education, which establishes an aristocracy in the midst of mass democracy, and only in that way can protect us against the crisis of liberal democracy, which is a, a crisis of moral um, education and training, basically, um, and not only moral, among both the rulers and the ruled, replacing a religious and a liberal education with mass desire and its efficient technological um, satisfaction. There you go. That's the preface in the first two chapters of Strauss's Liberalism, Ancient and Modern. And if you remember, we began with uh, Strauss as trying to carry out even more radically than Carl Schmitt did himself, a criticism of modern liberalism. Strauss believing that Schmitt stayed within the modern boundaries of liberalism by never getting beyond Hobbes to the classical alternative. And Strauss himself showing that we can get beyond the moderns to a classical alternative. Strauss, therefore, being the more thoroughgoing critic of liberalism as compared to Schmidt, uh, which may be a surprising outcome for some of you. So I stop now and say, is there any point that you'd like to discuss or anything you'd like clarified before we end the session? Uh, Patrick writes, I can't accept equating Nietzsche with fascism. Sorry, where'd my notes go here? He had very little faith in the idea of a collective form of government. Yeah, let me just say, Strauss also doesn't equate 
Nietzsche with fascism. I have to be fair. He distances him. And let me read the sentence. He says, Karl Marx, the father of communism. So there's a, a kind of a close link between Marx and communism. And Frederick Nietzsche, the step grandfather of fascism. So you see he's distanced Nietzsche quite a bit from fascism and only means to say that he had some relation to it that is uh, worth thinking about, but he does he doesn't equate it with it. He does distance him from it. But the point, the main point here is not that Nietzsche is responsible for fascism, but rather that a liberal education, a study of the great books, uh, even such as one that we cannot hope to even aspire uh, to, like the liberal education of Marx and Nietzsche, doesn't guarantee a shared, how does he put it, doesn't guarantee um, that they will, that a, a liberal, let me just read it. We cannot expect that liberal education will lead all who benefit from it to understand their civic responsibility in the same way or to agree politically. That's the key point. Bob writes in the comments, I'm not sure why the economic political structure of the ancient polity is more relevant to judging its aristocratic or democratic character versus a modern polity, i.e. why a modern aristocracy remains basically democratic. Yeah, Strauss does not discuss the economic or, I mean, the economic or political structure in this sense, he believes that there ought to be a class of people who have, uh, if he defends, remember, the gentle rule by gentlemen as a reflection of the rule by philosophers, then there must be a class of people who have such property as does not require their constant care so that they have the liberty to pursue politics and philosophy. In that sense, you know, he does discuss something of an economic and political uh, structure. So for you know, uh, we would assume that he would be against the breaking up of the states, for example, um, is not is more relevant to judging its aristocratic or democratic character. Yeah, remember here, the, we have to see that Strauss is focusing not on every aspect of the question, but on liberal education as something that still reminds us of the classical sense of what liberal means, liberality as a virtue or as an excellence, as a human excellence. So he's able to bring up the issue of the classical alternative through a distorted modern reflection, liberalism, by, by going through the term liberal, you see? So he has developed the distinction between ancient and modern political alternatives elsewhere, but here he does it specifically with respect to liberalism, which is why the book is called Liberalism, Ancient and Modern. And our entry point or wedge issue here is liberal education, which is does not meet the requirement. I mean, how would you put it? Uh, does not reflect the presuppositions of modern liberal democracy and therefore gives us a good sense of the contrast with the classical alternative. Bob writes, you could say the same about modern liberal democracy and liberal theorists. It's not quite what they would approve of. Yeah, so again, this isn't the last word on every topic, but it gives us, as I've tried to outline, um, why Strauss thinks that we have to reopen the quarrel between the ancients and the moderns, at least as concerns education and what's presupposed by the modern view versus the classical view. So we've brought out some points. And let me just show you, uh, this is one of many books that Strauss has written that deal with the issue of ancient and modern quarrel between the ancients and the moderns. It obviously consists of many more chapters than the ones that we've read. And in fact, this discussion, though it was an hour and 45 minutes, has only taken us to page 25 of you know more than 250. So it's not a comprehensive view of, uh, it's not a comprehensive overview of Strauss or even of the issues that matter to him but I would thought that it could be a useful um, introduction for those of you who have an interest in these types of things.